Well, it's uh, very good to be with you today, and uh, glad to see a good turnout. That's great. Hope the uh, fire code inspector is on vacation today. <laughs> pray for that. So anyway, uh, yeah, I am an astrophysicist, but more importantly, I'm a Christian, and I enjoy uh, sharing the gospel with people and defending the gospel. That's, that's really important these days in an age of skepticism. So what I want to talk about today, though, is not so much um, physics and astronomy. I'm sure you'll all want to read my doctoral dissertation later. Uh, no, you won't. You won't. Uh, I want to talk about the importance of, of Genesis and why it is that I kind of specialize in defending uh, creation in particular. I, I mean, anybody who comes up to me and challenges the Christian faith, I'm happy to debate them on that and, and, ch- and chat with them and hopefully help them over the stumbling blocks. But it is so important to understand that Genesis is literal history. And I know a lot of you know that because I know uh, Dr. MacArthur is very solid on creation, for which I'm grateful. But perhaps the way I've packaged things today can help you in defending the faith Uh, with others who have not been convinced by that. What I really want to do today is give you the key to solving all the world's problems. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The first step, as it were. And and there's some truth to that. I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, if you think about it, we have some problems in our society today, don't we? You're like, we're in California, we know this. Yeah, okay. I mean, the United States of America, we're blessed with such a Christian heritage and, I mean, you, everywhere you go, you can find Christian radio, you can find Christian television, uh, Christian bookstores, uh, Christian colleges, all over the United States. And yet, for all of this Christian influence, it certainly feels like we're becoming less Christian every day as a nation. How is that happening? And does it have anything to do with creation and evolution? And I think it does. Because if you think about it, all of the problems that we have in society can be traced back to a broken law of God where people are saying, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but I'm not going to do that. We're going to do it this other way. And that always causes problems. But why would people do that? Why would they go with uh, uh, you know, just the, the opinions of men? Why would they reject God's word? And if you think about it, the, the intellectual mechanism they use in rejecting God's word is to say that it's been disproved by science, especially in Genesis. You see, the real issue behind all the problems we have in the world is the same issue that's behind the evolution versus creation controversy. It's really God's word versus man's word. When there's a conflict between the two, who are you going to go with? And I want to suggest to you that as our nation has moved forward in time, we, we have lost the, the notion as a nation that the Bible is the, is the inerrant authoritative word of God. And those attacks on God's word, they begin in Genesis. They don't end there, but they start there. Because, let's be honest, most scientists would say, well, we know, we know, you know creation, that, that's not how it happened. We believe in a Big Bang billions of years ago, and then the earth uh, formed from that, and then life evolved on the earth, and so on. And if, if that's true, then Genesis isn't, and at least it's not to be read in a straightforward fashion anyway. And so that, once you question God's word at the beginning, where do you stop? Right? I mean, if God didn't get the details right at the beginning, where does he start telling the truth? That's what I want to know. It used to be in this nation, you could say things like abortion is wrong and homosexual behavior is wrong and adultery is wrong, and, and we had this moral majority that would say, well, yeah, of course, we understand that. Even people who were not Christians had a degree of respect for the Bible. Well, the good book says this, and, and t- see, today, that, that the culture shifted. Today, you say abortion's wrong, homosexual behavior's wrong, adultery's wrong, and people say, not according to my rules because they're not standing on God's word as the ultimate standard. That's shifted to man's opinion. And by the way, once you shift over to man's opinion, there is nothing to prevent an unlimited spiral into wickedness. 
because man's opinion is shifting sand. It changes. It changes very quickly. And that's really what evolution is all about. It's, it, when I, and when I talk about evolution, I'm talking about the, the idea that, that Darwin promoted that we're all descended from a common ancestor. All life is descended from a common ancestor over billions of years. And you've seen these kind of trees uh, in, in various textbooks and so on. Now, I don't believe in this kind of evolution. So, sometimes evolution can just mean change. We all agree that things change. The world was once a paradise. Today it's not. Things have changed. We get that. I don't believe in this kind of change. I don't believe that single-celled microbes like bacteria eventually become people as they reproduce over millions of years. But in the evolutionary view, they do believe that. In the evolutionary view, you're related to broccoli. That's your distant cousin. <laughs> and uh, I was speaking to a group of uh, 300 atheists one time. I said, you realize in your worldview, you believe you're related to broccoli. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, weren't you kind of uh, making fun of us for saying we believe we're related to broccoli? And I said, but isn't that what you believe? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, there you go then, right? I mean, if that sounds ridiculous, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what you believe. If it sounds ridiculous, reconsider your belief. But in any case, what you believe about origins will have consequences for uh, your thinking in other areas. It's very foundational. If creation's true, you'd expect to have laws because there's a lawgiver. God is the creator, and as such, he has the right to make the rules, and God will hold us accountable for our behavior. We see that right there in Genesis. We see God giving instructions to Adam on what to do and what not to do, and we see that there's a penalty for disobedience, and God, being all-powerful, is more than capable of carrying out that punishment. And so I have a very good reason to obey God's law. Now, we all fall short in that area. We need a Savior. That's not my point. My point is the whole idea of objective moral laws only makes sense in a creation worldview, where we're all made in God's image, and therefore we are obligated to our Creator to behave in the way that He has specified. Or marriage for that idea. Where do we get this idea that marriage is one man and one woman united by God for life? That's in Genesis, isn't it? Right there in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, gives more details and specifically tells us, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother and join to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That's right there in Genesis 1 and 2. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. <laughs> Where do, we, where do we learn about the origin of clothing? That's in Genesis, isn't it? Yeah. Or meaning of life. Why is it that human life is so valuable and, and, and more valuable than you know, animals and, and certainly more valuable than plants, which are not considered alive in the biblical system anyway? But it's because we're made in the image of God. That's what makes human beings special. And where do we learn that human beings are made in God's image? Genesis 1. All these foundational doctrines that we understand are important they're based in Genesis. Now, they're reiterated in the other scriptures, but they have their foundation in Genesis. And so if Genesis isn't true, you can't defend those doctrines. Jesus understood this. He often quoted or alluded to Genesis in Matthew 19 when the religious leaders were asking about divorce. They were trying to trip up Jesus. Bad idea. He went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2 as the foundation for marriage, saying this is how it's supposed to be. Because the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed divorce and so on. But it, originally it wasn't that way. Now, there's another option in our society today, evolution. And if you're logically consistent and you're an evolutionist, you would tend to develop a different set of standards. Because uh, laws, for example, why would you have laws in an evolutionary universe where we're just rearranged pawns come? 
I mean, what, what one chemical accident does to another chemical accident is morally irrelevant. There's no right or wrong about it. You mix the vinegar and the baking soda, it will fizz. You don't say, bad baking soda. That, no, that doesn't make any sense. Chemistry just does what chemistry does. If we're just chemicals, it makes no sense to have laws, particularly in an evolutionary worldview, which progresses by the strong dominating over the weak. Why would you have laws to protect the weak from the strong, which is what laws are for, if you think about it? Or why not do what you want with sex, for that matter? If we're just animals, animals do what's instinctive, why shouldn't we? Abort, why not abort babies? Get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. See, in the evolutionary view, we're just animals. In the creation view, we're different from animals. We're classified as a mammal, I get that, but, in term, but we're made in the image of God. That's unique, you see. And so we need to recognize that our foundations are under attack. The secularists are saying, hey, you can't trust the Bible because you can't trust the first chapter in the beginning God. That's silly. We know in the beginning hydrogen gas, which I think is silly. But in any case, that's what they claim. And then you can't defend those doctrines. See, a lot of Christians think, well, I don't have time to worry about origins, Dr. Lau, because we got all these problems in our society. Marriage is under attack, for example. There's a connection. Once you lose the authority of Genesis, you can't defend biblical marriage. You really can't because it's just a cultural trend. If Genesis is not real history, then marriage is a cultural trend, and hey, the culture changes. So why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? And that's exactly the argument the secularists make. A lot of Christians get intimidated because there are some brilliant people who believe in millions of years of evolution. I don't deny that. There are brilliant people who believe in evolution. There are brilliant people who believe in creation. I know a lot of them. Uh, it's kind of, I feel very privileged to know many of them. But in any case, we get intimidated and we think, well, those scientists have to be right. And so, um, you know, but I don't, you know, but I'm a Christian. I don't want to give that up. So maybe God used evolution somehow. And there's different positions there. But if you're going to take that position, you can't read Genesis as literal history, right? And a lot of Christians try that. They say, well, I'm a Christian, but I believe in evolution. It's the mechanism God used. If that's the case, then Genesis is not real history. And some Christians try to defend that. They'll say, oh, I think Genesis, it's not meant to be literal. It's, it's like a poem. I mean, there's sections in Scripture that are poetic. There are sections in Scripture that are poetic. Genesis isn't one of them. Uh, you know how those verses you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and they beget so-and-so, like you find in Genesis 5, <laughs> those genealogies. Be honest, you skip some of those, don't you? Yeah, well, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us these are real people that lived, and it tells us their names and the names of at least one of their uh, children, and, and often very specific information, like the amount of time that elapsed between uh, you know, the person's birth and, the, and one of the children, and then the time that elapsed afterward, you add it up, and it gives you the total age. It always adds up because they weren't common core, so they knew how to do arithmetic. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, yeah, this isn't written as a poem. or it's, it's written as history. And some people say, oh, it could be like a parable, though. It's just illustrating a spiritual truth. Uh, parables don't have to literally happen in history. But Genesis isn't written that way. In parables, you don't have a list of genealogies. That would be ridiculous because the point of a parable is to illustrate a spiritual truth using something that we're familiar with that's physical. And Jesus was masterful. That was his, uh, using parables, that was his main teaching style. You don't usually have specific names at all in a parable. That defeats the point. Parables should be as succinct as possible. Make the point, move on. You wouldn't give, you know, we wouldn't give all kinds of background information. It's usually there was a certain man, there was a king. Rarely do they even have a specific name. 
You wouldn't have genealogies in a parable. That doesn't make any sense. Nor is Genesis 5 poetic. It's easy to recognize Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is different from English. We tend to focus more on rhyme and meter. In Hebrew, they focused on parallelism. There's a few different kinds of it, but one form is where you, you make a statement and you, make, you say kind of the same thing using different words. So Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. See how it says the same thing using different words? It's just beautiful. And I, I think it's wonderful that, that God used the Hebrew language to, uh, to write at least the Old Testament of his word because in Hebrew, that poetry is preserved in translation. Right? I mean, if I, if I say the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands in English, you, you can see the beauty of that structure, whereas rhyme and meter would be lost in translation. So I think that's wonderful. You don't have that in Genesis. I mean, you might have a, a, a statement that somebody makes that's poetic in nature, but it would be few and far between. This is not Hebrew poetry. This would be a terrible poem, right? <laughs> And again, there's more detailed studies we could look at in terms of the use of the Vav consecutive. You have long chains of, and this happened, and that happened, and so on. You don't find that in Hebrew poetry. You might find an isolated uh, incident of that, but not long chains of it. So, and by the way, those genealogies lead up to Christ, and that's significant. That's significant. See, here's my question then for people who say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I think Adam... I don't think that's real, because evolution is the way life came about. So Adam, I think that's just a metaphor. Uh. So you're saying Jesus is descended from a metaphor? You don't have to be an expert on genetics to know that's not going to work, right? <laughs> a real person can't be descended from a fictional one. I mean, where does God start telling the truth? I mean, is, you know, is it Abraham? Is it David? I mean, no, no, it's all true. His word is true from the beginning. It's very important that Jesus is descended from a literal Adam, and so are we all. Right? God has made from one blood or from one man all nations, Acts 17. That's, that's theologically important because it means that Jesus Christ is our blood relative. Why is that important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can redeem you. Important principle in the Old Testament, the concept of the kinsman redeemer. It's because Christ, we're all of one blood. It, it, that means that Christ's blood counts for our blood on the cross, you see, if we receive him as Savior, because he's our blood relative. That's why the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, the Bible says in Hebrews 10.4, because we're not related to them. Their blood is not our blood. Now, they were used symbolically in the Old Testament to point forward to the Messiah, but no one ever got saved by animal sacrifice. That was symbolic. It, it showed what the Messiah would do. But it doesn't pay for sins because we're not related to animals, unless, of course, evolution's true, in which case that doctrine's gone. Yeah. Where do we learn that death is the penalty for sin? It's in Genesis, isn't it? It's reiterated in the other scriptures, no doubt, but it, it's in Genesis where we first learn about that. Because when you sin against God, you're, you're committing high treason against the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a capital offense. Rebelling against our own creator. It's amazing he saves any of us. It's amazing. You see, the gospel goes back to Genesis. It really does. It's, putting it this way, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved by plunging the world into darkness? Or is it Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who saved us by taking our place on the cross? Without the first Adam, you'd have to ask, why is the last Adam necessary? And, and that, is, that is a huge issue when people evangelize, when Christians evangelize, you know, you need to trust in Jesus. The, one of the most common reactions is, why? 
I'm basically a good person, right? Well, uh, there's someone who doesn't believe in Genesis. Take him back to the beginning. Say, okay, now let's go through Genesis. Now, now, now that you've read this account, let me ask you a question. How many sins did it take to ruin the world? One. Ah. Now God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. They're going to remain perfect forever, which means not one sin can come into them. Oh, now we see the significance of it, don't we? One sin was enough to ruin the world because Adam was given charge over that world. He had dominion, and that affected everything under his authority. And so now we see the issue. And if you think about it, the sin that Adam committed, it's not what we'd normally think of as all that, all that terrible, right? It's not like he murdered anybody. He broke his diet. But, <laughs> but it was something God told him not to do, and that's what makes it treason. That's what makes it treason. The Bible really is the history book of the universe. It does contain other types of literature. Certainly it contains poetic sections like the Psalms and Proverbs. But it's primarily a history book telling us the events that have happened throughout history in terms of our relationship with God, the, the significant events there. And I find that a lot of people want to embrace the morality the Bible teaches. It's, there's some good stuff in there. But they want to reject the history. Even atheists like some of the morality the Bible teaches. Thou shalt not murder. They like that one. They don't want to be murdered. Thou shalt not steal. They like that one too, right? They don't want somebody taking their wallet. But um, the morality comes out of the history. Why is it wrong to murder? Because human beings are made in God's image. Oh, yeah. Why is it wrong to steal? Because God, well, God's told us not to, and God ultimately owns everything anyway. And he apportions to each how he decides. So we want to separate the history from the morality. You can't do that. Jesus put it like this when he was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's pretty good, isn't it? Because the Bible addresses both. It addresses earthly issues and heavenly issues, spiritual issues. Uh, earthly issues like the days of creation, like the flood that occurred at the time of, of Noah. And the Bible addresses heavenly things like salvation. But you say, yes, but most scientists would say, you know, creation in six days, a global flood on earth, that can't happen. So I don't think that those details are exactly right. If God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? You'd have to reject that too to be logically consistent. Maybe the real issue is, does God know how to communicate or doesn't he? Now I think God, who is a linguistic being, who in fact spoke the universe into existence, probably knows how to communicate with the creatures that he made in his image and whom he gifted with language. Adam was able to speak right away. I've always been a little jealous that he didn't have to go to grammar school to learn how <laughs> learn the rules of grammar. It was just programmed in. That's pretty neat. But God gave, it, God gave him that gift of language. God does know how to communicate. The Bible really is pretty clear. Now, I know that there are some difficult doctrines, but that's more in terms of accepting them than, than understanding them, I think. Uh, but for the most part, it's very clear. It's just we don't want to believe what it says. That's the issue. And so you got God's infallible word and man's fallible word. And when people try to make those two agree, maybe to be considered academically respectable, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I believe in evolution. You're going to have to modify one of them. And the one you modify is the one you don't really have your faith in because you're not going to modify your ultimate standard. You'd, have, you'd need a greater standard to tell you how to modify it, then it wouldn't be ultimate. The religious leaders at the time of Christ's earthly ministry were masterful at reinterpreting God's word to fit their particular ideas of how things should work, their traditions. 
and we look at them and say, oh, those Pharisees. And we do the same thing. And how did Jesus respond when the religious leaders of his day had reinterpreted God's word contrary to its intent? Not with modern political correctness. Not with, oh, well, that's not my personal opinion, but if you want to believe that, that's okay. Or, you know, it's not a salvation issue, so let's not worry about it. Let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya. That was not the way he responded. It was, it is written, have you not read? Jesus took people back to the authority of the written word. And I think that's very significant because Jesus would not have had to have answered that way. He could have said, because I'm God and I said so. And that would be perfectly legitimate. But I think this is an example for us. We can't say, I'm God and I said so, but we can say, God has said in his word, and that settles the matter. You can think of the culture war that's going on today a bit like these two cities. You've got the city of Christianity based on creation. God's word is true from the beginning. And the other competing faith system, the big one in our culture today, secular humanism. That's the big one. There are other religions, but that's the big one. And um, it's based on evolution. Man independent from God determines truth. It really is. Secular humanism is based on evolutionary thinking. And how are we fighting this war Maybe not as effectively as we could be. We're, we're shooting those billboards, and that's okay. We should, we should do some of that. But you see, if we, just, if we just zap those billboards, we're not really dealing with the problem. They're going to keep coming back because we haven't dealt with the root of the issue. We're just trying to alleviate symptoms rather than deal with the problem. We're shooting our own foundation. That's the worst thing we could be doing, saying it doesn't really matter what you believe about Genesis, you know. As long as, as long as you trust in Jesus, that's the main thing. Well, that is the main thing, but that doesn't mean we're free to ignore the rest of the Bible. Jesus believed in Genesis. So if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we need to do the same. The secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. They're, they're saying you can't trust the Bible because you can't trust those first two chapters. Hmm. And people buy into that. It's a shame. What's the solution? I think it's fine to zap billboards. We should do that. We should point out that racism's wrong, abortion's wrong. We should fight those issues. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, we need to, rather than just, just alleviate symptoms, we need to deal with the problem as well. We need to point out that evolution is not true. It is a scientifically bankrupt conjecture. It is not something that has good evidence. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to debate people on that issue if, they're, if they have some kind of credentials where they can speak to the issue. But the, the, the fact is, creation is true. We need to repair that damage that's been done uh, in the minds of people. God's word will stand. There's no doubt about that. I've read the end of the book. We win. There's no doubt. I mean, the, the, the secularists are trying to compete against an all-powerful God. That's not going to work out well for them. The only reason they're able to do it is because he sustains the very atoms of their body. Right? I mean, if he didn't do that, they would cease to exist. So we win. It's just a question of how many victims this false worldview takes with it. And I'd like that to be as few as possible. I'd like those people. I like how this is illustrated. We're not shooting at the people. We're shooting at that city which represents a worldview that is contrary to God's word and therefore false. And these are the victims. We want them to abandon that sinking city. It's going down. We want them to swim over and join us on the city of God, Christianity. We want them to be saved. That's why I founded the Biblical Science Institute. I want people to be saved. For me, this is not an academic game. Souls are on the line. And I want people to be saved. That's what it comes down to. There are some organizations that say, well, you know, we'll leave the Bible out of it. We'll just show you that there's a creator. Maybe they think that's a stepstone strategy, but um, 
you know, the demons believe in a creator and tremble. It doesn't save them. I want people to be saved. So I'm very happy to lay all my cards on the table and say, I'm a Christian. I think this is true. And, you know, let's, let's talk about it. What about the time scale of creation? There's some uh, controversy there, although there really shouldn't be. The Bible tells us that God created in six days, tells us what he did on each of those days. Human beings are made on the sixth day, along with land animals. And, um, and from those genealogies that you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, right? You'd add those up, and you get about 4,000 years between Adam and Christ. You need some other information, too, but it's all, it's all there in Scripture. Can't get an exact date, but something like 4,000 years between Adam and Christ. And then that Christ's earthly ministry was 2,000 years ago, so something like 6,000 years for the age of the earth and the universe. And I have to tell you, in academia, that is not a popular opinion. But it is recorded history. It is recorded history. But again, we get intimidated because the textbooks all say billions of years, almost all of them. And there you go. See, the fossils were deposited over hundreds of billions of years. See, there it is. It's got to be true. It's in a textbook. I confirmed it on the internet, so it's got to be true. YouTube fact checkers said it's good. <laughs> we get intimidated. We get intimidated. By the way, fossils do not come with a little label telling you how old they are. Right? You might have seen labels attached to them in museums. They were attached later <laughs> by people who were not around when the fossil formed. We get intimidated, though, and we think we've got to get the millions of years in there because there's these brilliant people that believe in millions of years. Again, I don't deny that. But um, where are you going to put it? You can't put the millions of years between Adam and Christ because that would make nonsense of those genealogies. There's not that many people between Adam and Christ. And people say, well, there could be missing... Uh, generations. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I think there's evidence against it. But in any case, you can't get that into millions of years, right? Because even the secularists agree that human beings don't go back, say, a billion years. Human beings are recent. So people try to put the millions of years into the creation week because that's the only place they can think to do it. And there are a few different ways they try to do this. Some people say, well, maybe the millions of years happened before the beginning. And that's pretty easy to refute, because if the millions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning. <laughs> it would be the much later, right? <laughs> and that's not what the Bible says. It's in the beginning God created heaven and the earth. Some people try to put a gap between verse 1 and verse 2, for which there is no evidence in Scripture. But uh, we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later, and there's evidence against it. One of the most common today is to say that the days really weren't days at all. They were vast ages. God meant to say that he created in, in six ages, and they could have been hundreds of millions of years each. And, uh, of course, my question is, then why isn't that what he said? Because he does use the ordinary word for day. Some people have said, oh, but there is no Hebrew word for a long period of time, as if, well, God forgot to create a word for that, and just said, oh, I just, oh, just have to use day and hope that they figure it out. <laughs> By the way, there are several Hebrew words that indicate a long period of time, like olam, which means a long period of time. So... <laughs> God could have said that if he'd have wanted to. He says days. Oh, but the Bible says with God, one day is like a thousand years, right? Second Peter 3, 8, there it is. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years. They only quote the first part of it, though. What does the rest say? And a thousand years is one day. It cancels that right out. See? Yeah. When we read this in context, <laughs> which people never do, when we read this in context, is it referring to the days of creation? No. The context of it is explaining God's patience in delaying judgment so that many people can be saved. That's the context of it when you read it 
in, in, in the actual passage. It's explaining God's patience by pointing out he's beyond time. God does understand time. He created it. He knows how it works better than any of us. In fact, he declares the end from the beginning in Isaiah 46. That's part of the trial of the false gods. They can't do that. God declares the end from the beginning because he's beyond time. So this is not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see it in Scripture to a thousand years as if God doesn't know what a day is. And by the way, people only try that with Genesis anyway. They don't take the other days in Scripture and make them a thousand years. It's only in Genesis. The Hebrew word for day is yom. It's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. Plural form is yomim. Why do people only question, what does day mean in Genesis? Isn't that true? Do people sit around having heated Bible discussions on how long was Jonah really in the belly of the great fish? Were those ordinary days? Oh, I think they might have been a thousand years each. He was probably in there a really long time. (laughs) No wonder he repented. (laughs) It doesn't happen. Or how long did did Joshua really take to march around the walls of Jericho? Were they ordinary days or millions of years? You can tell. We can't. He might have been there. I love the rut that he's made circle around there so many times. That's great. No, the, the, the definition of yom, it's a day. Now, it can, be, it can mean a period of time in a generic sense when used non-literally, right? And, and you'll find that in some of the poetic literature, the day of the Lord. I think that's a longer period of time than 24 hours, even though it's using yom. But that's a non-literal use of that word. The, the literal use of, of yom is day. And it's just like our English word for day. It's eerie how similar they are because our English word for day can mean a period of time longer than 24 hours. You might say back in my father's day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that means a longer period of time. It wouldn't be millions of years, but it would be longer than 24 hours. We get that. Back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. You got the word day used three times, and I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding it. Why? Because you used context. You used the surrounding words to constrain the meaning. Most words have more than one meaning. You look in a dictionary, right? It's got one, two, sometimes two A, two B, two C, three, and so on. You think about, if you think about, wow, with, with each word having more than one meaning, it's amazing we can communicate. How do we do it? Because in a A well-constructed sentence, only one meaning for each word makes sense. That's how we do it. And we're naturals at it until it comes to Scripture, which we don't want to believe what it says. Sometimes somebody will come up with a poorly constructed sentence where two or more meanings are equally likely. If, If I said to you, hey, the student center is giving away free guitars, no strings attached. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are usually funny, right? That's an amphiboly fallacy, but, um, but no, God knows how to construct proper sentences, so we get that. We get that. So let's take a look at the context of the Hebrew word for day, just like English. Father's Day, okay, that's a period of time. Three days, those would be ordinary days, earth rotations. It's got a number with it. Texas, during the day, that would be the light portion of an ordinary day. Same with Hebrew. Uh, and we'll, we'll just take a look outside of Genesis 1 where we all agree, no disagreement on how long Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Uh, so when day is used, for example, with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day is in an ordered list, that uh, happens over 400 times outside of Genesis 1, and we all agree that's an ordinary day. If, if I said he, on the third day he went up to such and such a city, you'd say, well, of course, yeah, that means the third day. It's the th- third earth rotation. We get that. If evening and morning are used together, even if the word day isn't there, what's an evening plus a morning? It's a day, isn't it? Yeah, those are the boundaries of a day. That happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree that's... Those are ordinary days. 
If I said there was evening that day or there's morning that day, you'd understand I'm talking about an ordinary day. That happens 23 times each outside of Genesis 1. We all agree those are ordinary days. If I said there was day, then there was night. You'd know I'm talking about an ordinary day and an ordinary night, right? That makes sense. So you got it? Day with a number, evening and morning together, evening with day or morning with day, or day contrasted with night. Any one of those indicates it's an ordinary day. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said he created in six days using context. Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, and God called the light day. Well, there's another one. Day is when it's light out. That's an ordinary day. And the darkness he called night. You got night associated with day. That's going to be an ordinary day. You got evening associated with day. That's going to be an ordinary day. You've got morning associated with day. That's going to be an ordinary day. You've got evening and morning together, which makes an ordinary day. And you got a number with it. Can there be any doubt that that first day was an ordinary day? God used about every contextual indicator he could possibly have used, and then some, right? Well, that's the first day. What about the other days of creation? Can we determine from context what they are? Let's take a look. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's kind of like God saying, see, they're ordinary days, and in case you still don't get it, they're ordinary days, and in case you're a little thick, they're ordinary days, and in case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days, right? People say, oh, but the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. That doesn't matter. That, that's, it's primarily the rotation of the earth that determines the 24 hours. The sun just provides a relatively permanent uh, light source. So as long as you have light and a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. Did we have a light source for the first three days? Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. We had light. God divided the light from the darkness, right? And did we have a rotating planet? Evening and morning were the first day. Yeah. So you're going to have ordinary days before day four. Just God replaces that temporary light with the sun as a permanent light bearer. The Bible doesn't say why. I personally suspect it's so people would be less inclined to worship the sun. Most pagan cultures worship the sun as the primary source of life. So God displaces it a few days. He's saying, I'm the primary source of life. The sun is just an object that God created to sustain the life that, he, that only he can create. That's one possibility anyway. Where do we get our word for week? Where, where is, what is the origin of week? You know, all the other units of time have a basis in astronomy. A day is a rotation of Earth. Uh, a month is the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's where we get the word month. It's a month. Uh, years, the amount of time it takes the earth to go around the sun. But where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? Not from astronomy, from history. It's because that's how long God chose to take to create and rest. And the Bible is explicit about that in Exodus 20. You know Exodus 20, that's the Ten Commandments. And uh, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In six days you'll do our labor. The seventh is the Lord's. It goes on to explain that. Verse 11 is the explanation for why. Why do we have this this pattern of a seven-day week, because that's what God did. And it uses the same Hebrew word for day in the plural form, yamim, which is always literal. Yamim never means a long period of time. So six days, those, are, those would have to be six days. It's the same word that's used for our work week. God's saying, you work six days, rest one, because that's what I did. And of course, in the New Testament, Christ rose on uh, Sunday, and so we honor, we honor him as taking Sunday as our day to, to rest and enjoy the Lord. But in any case, the pattern of six and one is scriptural because it's what God did. It's what God did. It's very clear about that. So if God had really created over millions of years and rested a million years, you'd have an awfully long work week. 
you would never make it to the weekend, literally. <laughs> Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day and say, God, God really made everything in one day or even in an instant. They had various philosophical reasons for that. And I want to show you how Martin Luther responds to this because it's a wonderful response. He says, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any common according to which six days were one day. I love this last part. He says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. <laughs> that may be my favorite Luther quote, and he's got some good ones too. Well, there's the gap theory then. For folks who say, yeah, there's, there's no doubt that um, the days are ordinary days, but maybe we can shove millions of years in between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, and then billions of years of stuff happened. Maybe, maybe Satan was given charge over that original earth, and maybe he rebelled and, then, and maybe ruined that original earth. Maybe there was a flood in, in, in Satan's reign. And then, and then in verse 2, they'd like to translate it, the earth became without form and void. Um, but the word haita there just means was. It, it, it can't really mean became. Um, there would be another way to, to phrase it if you wanted to say that. But you really can't put a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2 because of the way it's worded in the Hebrew language. Uh, this is Genesis 1 in Hebrew. Hebrew reads right to left, opposite of English. And verse 2 uses a construction called a vav disjunctive. And that's where you have and, the word and, which is a single letter in Hebrew, and attached to the next word, um, when you have and followed by a non-verb, like the earth, and the earth. Earth is not a verb, it's a noun, right? So that's, that's a vav disjunctive. And that has a specific role in Hebrew. It indicates that that uh, verse is a comment, clarification, or explanation of what came previously. Okay, so it's, the Bible's saying, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It's kind of like what we use parentheses for in English. Parentheses and the earth was out of form and void. It's describing the conditions of the earth when it was first created. It's explaining verse 1. And we need that because if we just had verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, you might think, oh, he made it like it is today. He, he made it in an instant with life on it and continents and oceans and, and birds and so on. Verse 2 is clarifying that when God first made the heaven and the earth, it wasn't like it is today. It, 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 was, it didn't have the shape that it has today, and it wasn't full of life and continents and so on. So um, it's, it, that's why it says it's unformed and unfilled, tohu bohu, basically, in the Hebrew language. That's what it means. And so, um, oh, okay, God took time then to make it the way it is today, and he did that as a pattern for us. Uh, he could have made the universe instantly in the sense that he has the power to do that, but he really slowed himself down, and he did that for our benefit. He did that for our benefit. The rest of Genesis is five consecutive. That's different. That's and, and followed by a verb in the Hebrew word order, which is not always the same as English, and said God and so on, and Vayomer Elohim, Yihivor, etc. Okay, so that does follow in time, but not verse 2. So I think that's interesting. What about the science? Well, there's a, there's a lot of science that confirms the biblical age of the earth and the universe for that matter. A lot of people think carbon dating gives millions of years. There are other methods that secular scientists believe um, indicates millions of years, uranium, lead, potassium, argon, various radiometric dating methods. They're all based on assumptions. Um, they give wrong answers on rocks of known age, so that should sort of diminish your confidence in these methods. But carbon dating is not, not one of the ones that gives wrong ages. It tends to give ages that are ballpark within the right answer. 
because when we test it on things of known age, it, gives, it tends to give the right answer. It might be a little bit too old, but not, not much. It's based on C14, which is a variety of carbon. Most carbon is C12, because it's got the six protons and the six neutrons in the nucleus. There's a variety. C14 has two extra neutrons, which makes it unstable. C14 would really rather be nitrogen, and it will convert into nitrogen. You don't have to do anything to it. It'll just spontaneously convert atom by atom. You don't know which one's going to pop next, but you do know after 5,700 years, half of them have decayed to nitrogen. And so it's kind of like popcorn. You don't know which kernel's going to pop next, but you do know after two minutes, if they're going to pop, they have. So there you go. And so, and we find this stuff. We find C14 in diamonds. Now, C14 can't last even one million years. If the entire Earth were nothing but C14, after one million years, you'd not have a single atom left. They would have all decayed into nitrogen. And yet we find it in diamonds that are buried deep down in the Earth that are insulated from cosmic rays. They got C14 in them. They can't be any more than a few thousand years old. Lots of stuff like that. The last few months have been really exciting as we've looked at the, you know, these images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Back in January, before uh, Webb had taken any images at all, I wrote an article saying, here's what I as a creationist expect the James Webb Telescope to find. And I made three specific predictions that are opposite what the secularists made. And in July, those first images came in. Guess who was right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not because I'm so clever. It's because I base my thinking on God's word. And I, and I made some assumptions, too, because the Bible doesn't give specific details. It doesn't say, here's what James Webb will find. I had to make some guesses, but they're based on biblical principles. The secularists were astonished to find galaxies at distances they didn't think were possible. I predicted that because I, I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible. If you want to get the right answer in science, start your thinking with Scripture. It's just getting embarrassing for the evolutionists, to be honest, as we encounter more and more data that just con continues to confirm creation. It really shows you that evolution is not a scientific hypothesis because it would have been falsified a billion times over. It's a paradigm. It's a way of thinking that causes people to interpret data according to that worldview. Well, anyway, what I want to hit now is, th does this issue really matter in terms of the age of things? Because the secularists came along and said the Bible's not true because we think these rock layers were deposited over millions of years. Again, the rocks don't come with labels. But they, they had made some assumptions on how, how long it takes for rocks to be deposited and so on. Most of, them have been, most of those assumptions have been thoroughly disproved now. Mount St. Helens laid down new uh, sedimentary layers and so on. But a lot of the theologians thought, well, you know, it's not a salvation issue, so maybe we can allow that in Scripture. Maybe there are interpretations that will allow the millions of years. I think they were well-intentioned. Not all the theologians did that, but a lot of them did that, especially in the 1800s. And, and I'll agree that this is not a salvation issue. No, nobody here is saying that you have to believe in six days to be saved. We're saved by faith through Christ, by God's grace, right? We don't want to add to that. God doesn't require us to have perfect theology to be saved, praise God. But nonetheless, <laughs> we ought to get our theology as right as possible out of gratitude for that salvation, right? And because it goes better for us if we, if we uh, think God's thoughts after him. So it does matter. It's kind of like gravity. Gravity is not a salvation issue. You don't have to believe in gravity to go to heaven. You'll probably get there before I do, right? <laughs> it's an important issue. And there's a couple reasons why the time scale does matter. First of all, it is what the Bible teaches. Now, most of us can't read the Bible in the original languages, but that's no excuse today. You can get multiple different 
English translations, if they say the same thing, you know it's been well translated. Or for that matter, you can get software and go back and look up the Hebrew words and see how they're used elsewhere and so on. There's no doubt, six days. There's no doubt about that. You see, the same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches some other things that most scientists would say are not possible, like a virgin birth in human beings, a virgin birth of Christ, right? Turning, Jesus turned water into wine. He walked on the water. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. He raised himself from the dead. That's pretty neat. And some people say, yeah, but, you know, six days, though. Most scientists would say that's not possible. And so I don't think, I, I'm going to reinterpret those sections of Scripture. Well, I got news for you. Most scientists would say virgin birth's not possible. Turning water into wine's not possible. Resurrection from the dead's not possible. Are you going to reinterpret those sections to be consistent with what the secularists say is possible? And by the way, the resurrection, that is a salvation issue. If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins, your faith is in vain. The Bible itself says that. So that is an important issue. So now, and by the way, some people will say, oh, but that list on the right, Dr. Lau, those are miracles. And so you can't apply the standards of science to that. I agree. But wasn't the creation of the universe a miracle? If not, I'd like to see you do it. There's another reason why we don't want to add in the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the world. And we do find fossils everywhere. I would expect that because there was a worldwide flood. There was a global flood that killed every, basically all land animals that were air-breathing that were not on Noah's Ark. And so um, I would expect to find fossils everywhere. But the secularists deny a worldwide flood. They say, no, these fossils were laid down gradually over hundreds of millions of years. Okay. Well, if you have hundreds of millions, if you got fossils 100 million years ago, you've got a huge theological problem because a fossil is a dead thing. And if you got death 100 million years ago, you've got death before Adam sinned. In fact, you've got death before Adam existed because we all agree human beings don't go back 100 million years. But doesn't the Bible say that death came into the world as a result of Adam's sin? Isn't indeed death the enemy, one that will be destroyed? It's the last enemy to be defeated by Christ when he resurrects everybody. But you see, if you believe in millions of years, even if you don't believe in evolution, but you say, but I think God created over hundreds of millions of years, then it's by death came man rather than by man came death. Those are logically contrary positions. They cannot both be true. It's a question of which one are you going to believe? Hmm. You could imagine Adam and Eve enjoying that original paradise because when God saw everything he'd made, he said, behold, it was very good. It wasn't just the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was extra special. Garden of delight, really what it means. Um, but it, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Was there already death and suffering in the world? Animals killing animals, eating each other, and so on? If so, then the Garden of Eden is sitting on top of millions of years of death, disease, struggling, bloodshed, carnivorous activity. We find fossils with evidence of disease in them, like uh, arthritis, cancer, even. Hmm, was that part of God's very good earth? I don't think so. Not at all. You see, if it is, if, if, if the disease was already there, if these fossils are hundreds of millions of years old, then the disease was already in the world when God finally got around to creating Adam and Eve, and oh, it's very good, and that means disease is very good. We prayed for some people this morning with cancer. Why would we do that if cancer is very good? You see, because we know better. We know that cancer and death, those things are an intrusion into a world that was once perfect. And so it's right for us to ask God to alleviate the punishment in as much as he's willing to do so. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. That's his right. But my point is, the world is not very good anymore. 
There's a remnant of beauty in it. Don't get me wrong. There's some beautiful places in the world. I live in Colorado Springs. It's very pretty. But um, there's, there's ugliness in the world, too. That's because of man's sin. Some people say, oh, but I think it was just human death that entered the world when Adam sinned. I don't think you can defend that, not, not biblically. Because if you think about it, when, um, when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them, he provided skins of clothing. Where did those come from? Those are animal skins. God sacrificed an animal or animals to provide those clothing, that clothing for Adam and Eve. I think that's kind of a picture of the gospel because God's saying, you're, you're the one that sinned, but these innocent creatures die to provide a covering for your shame. They symbolized what Christ actually did, which I think is pretty amazing. It bothers some people. Well, why do animals have to suffer when, when Adam's the one that sinned? Because they were under his dominion. That's the nature of authority, Right? When our government does something stupid, we all suffer because we're under their authority. In California, you know this very well. <laughs> now, some people say, oh, but you at least have to have plant death before Adam sinned because they were eating plants or plant parts. And, uh, well, the, the interesting thing about that is plants biblically are not considered alive. And so they don't literally die because they're not literally alive to begin with. The biblical word that's um, in, in, in Hebrew that's life uh, nefesh, sometimes soul even. So the uh, human beings have this nefesh and animals have this nefesh. Plants are never referred to as nefesh, nefesh kai, as living creatures. And so um, they're not, they, plants are not, by the biblical criterion, alive. Now, b- modern biologists use a different definition of life, and they're welcome to do that, just be consistent. But my point is, plants don't die in the biblical sense because they were never alive in the biblical sense. What are plants classified as? Food albeit self-replicating food, which is awesome. Only God could think of something like that. It's pretty neat. Molecular machines that reproduce that we can eat and gives us nutrients. It's astonishing. But we, we, we know that. We know that plants are in a different category and uh, from animals. And plant, I mean, you can talk about a dead plant or dead tree, but that doesn't mean it was ever really alive. In the same way, you can talk about a dead battery. It was never really alive, right? We get that. You come across a so-called dead tree, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it over the mantle. If you come across a dead animal, you say, well, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it. <laughs> it's different, isn't it? Yeah. We recognize animal death. We recognize animal death as an intrusion into the world. What about the worldwide flood? People who believe in the millions of years can't consistently believe in a worldwide flood because either those fossils were deposited over hundreds of millions of years or one global flood would do it. With, with a few fossils afterwards, perhaps. I'm thinking of there's a prominent um, uh, teacher uh, in California, actually, who uh, teaches that there was no global flood. He, says, he said there was a worldwide flood, because all hum- it was just the world of men, because all human beings were living in the Mesopotamia Valley, and it just flooded Mesopotamia. So he says there was a flood of Noah, but it was local. What does the Bible teach? Genesis 6, 17, God says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy, what, a few things here and there? To destroy all flesh. Wherein is the breath of life from, what, the local Mesopotamia Valley? From under heaven. That means under the sky. That would pretty much be everything, wouldn't it? And it says, And everything that is in the earth shall die. Uh, Genesis 7, 19 through 20, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. That's not a local flood, folks. That's a global flood, because all the high hills that are under the whole heaven, the whole sky, 
And I understand there are sections in Scripture where all can mean all in a, in a limited sense, but when you double it like that, all the high hills under all the heavens, same word in Hebrew, kol, um, it, it indicates everything. It's, it's an emphasis indicating it was all the high hills under the entire sky. Uh, verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, every creeping thing, every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. It was all that was in the dry land died. Every living substance was destroyed. Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. So again, God's just beating it home. This is a global flood. This is a global flood. Uh, you can't parse it any other way. <clears throat> and, by, and by the way, you can't have a local flood that covers the high hills, that covers the mountains. What would that look like? It would look like this, right? <laughs> or for that matter, what was the purpose of the rainbow? God's promise never to send another global flood. If it was just a local flood, then God has broken his promise thousands of times. Because we have local floods. But we've never had another global flood. God keeps his word. What about the ark? Why would you spend all those time and resources, all that... All that work, building an ark the size of an ocean liner, taking two of every air-breathing land animal, including birds that could easily escape a local flood, to survive a local flood that you knew was coming. I mean, it was just local. Why didn't he just move? Right? That would be a lot easier. I'm going to flood this area. Okay, I'll go over there. The only way to survive a global flood, an ark, that's what you had to do. We, uh, well, I'm an astronomer, so we got to do a little bit of astronomy here. Here's a picture of the surface of Mars. We've sent a number of spacecraft up there, even got a helicopter to fly on it recently, which I think is amazing, um, just incredible, because the, the atmosphere is very thin, so to get something like that to fly is astonishing, um, really neat. So it's interesting, though, some of the places where they've landed, they've determined are floodplains. Interesting. A quote from a newspaper says, A flood of biblical proportions, enough to fill the Mediterranean Sea, gushed down from the highlands of Mars a billion or so years ago. The latest pictures from the Pathfinder confirmed Monday. A quote, that was back from 1997. So I think this is interesting because secularists are willing to believe in a, a flood of biblical proportions on Mars, and yet Mars today has no water on its surface. <laughs> secularists are willing to believe in a flood of biblical proportions on a planet that has no liquid water. Earth today is currently 71% flooded with water. They say, oh, but you can't, have a, you can't have a global flood here. Absurd. It really shows you that it's not about the evidence. It's about your way of thinking and, and whether you're aligned with God or in rebellion against him. That's what it comes down to. If you could even out Earth's features, push the continents into the ocean basins, and we think something like that happened during the flood, the Earth would be covered with water to a depth of 1.6 miles. There's plenty of water. Most of it's still there. So it's interesting. But the Bible predicted that, that scoffers would come in the last days. It says, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. There's so much evidence of a worldwide flood. I think the secularists would agree if the Bible didn't specifically say there was a global flood. Well, I want to sum up with this cross series. The, the uh, church is preaching a message, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. That's the gospel. That's great. We want to preach that. There has been an attack. One of the attacks is millions of years. And that impacts, and the interesting thing is, because of where that impacts, we're inclined to think, that's a miss. That didn't hit the cross. Not a salvation issue. Don't have to worry about millions of years. What we fail to recognize is millions of years is an attack on Genesis. If millions of years is true, Genesis isn't. At least it can't be read in a straightforward fashion. 
And Genesis is foundational to the gospel. It's in Genesis we learn death's the penalty for sin. It's in Genesis we learn we're all descended from Adam. We've inherited his sin nature. It's in Genesis where God first promises to send a redeemer, one of the, the seed of the woman, one of her descendants, would crush the serpent's head, conquering Satan. See, the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming, if they were to aim at the cross, we'd be concerned about that. Oh, you can get books to defend the resurrection. We understand that's important, and it is. Satan's crafty, though. He aims at our foundation, and we think it's just a side issue. It's really a foundational issue. Is the Bible true from the very beginning? Then these different attacks came, naturalism, evolution, eight men, millions of years, no global flood, and they impact. And again, we're inclined to think, well, that's a miss. It's really a direct hit. That's right where they were aiming. And what is the result of all these different attacks on Genesis? Unbelief. People have the misconception that Genesis has been disproved by science. As a, as a scientist and as a Christian, I take issue with that. But that's, that's what happens in their mind. That gospel has become obscured by unbelief. And so these symptoms happen, and they're symptoms of an underlying worldview that's contrary to God. Prayers out loud in schools and, hey, trust in Jesus, which we should. Creation's outlawed in schools. Jesus is going to return. Yeah, he will, but he's told us to do some things in the meantime, like make disciples of all nations and be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks a reason of the hope that's in you and to do so with gentleness and respect. Bible's outlawed in schools. Now let's get the Bible back into schools. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm not against doing things that are uh, of a political persuasion. That's fine. We should be doing that too. But if the culture is going to be one to Christ, it won't be through politics, okay? Because you say, well, if the right, if the right guy gets into the, into the position, then he'll just get voted out the next term if the majority of people are wicked, right? That's how that works. Ten Commandments outlawed in schools. <laughs> Let's concentrate on worship. Church can be doing a lot of good things, but if we're not waking up to what the, what the root of the problem is, um, then the gospel has become obscured by unbelief. This is the way I see the culture at the moment. We're preaching the right message. Come to Jesus, come to cross and be saved. But people don't believe it because they think the Bible's been disproved in the first chapters, allegedly by science. So that's why I founded the Biblical Science Institute. In fact, this presentation is a little unusual because most of the talks I do are along the science that confirms um, the Bible. But I wanted to show you why this issue is important. We come along the side, that, of course, I'm a member of my own local church body. But uh, as, a, as a ministry, we come alongside the church, repair that damage, and show you you can trust in the Bible. It's true from the very first verse. And then when these different attacks come, we want to warn you, these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then we show you how to refute all those different issues, you see, using the resources that we have. You like that Death Star animation? I worked really hard on that one. <laughs> it wasn't easy to do in PowerPoint. Anyway, ultimately, we'd like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to recognize these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then uh, every individual can, can refute those things. You don't have to go out and get a PhD in science. God calls a few of us to do that and, to, and then to kind of filter through the, the details and then, and then give you the information that you can then pass on and share. But, uh, but we're all called to defend the faith. That's all of us. If you're a Christian, you're an apologist, right? You're called to defend the faith. And then the church can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And people say, I get it now. I get it. It's because of what Adam did. I'm born into the world, a rebel uh, committing treason against the king of kings. I deserve death. I deserve an infinite death because I've sinned against an infinitely holy God. That's why I need a savior. That's what it comes down to. Uh, let me show you some of the resources that we have. We do have a website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. That's a free resource for you. Please check that out. 
Uh, we have over here on our table uh, some, some wonderful resources. This, a version of this presentation is on DVD if you want to get that, Understanding Genesis. I have a book that goes into a little more detail on this and shows you how to defend the time scale, and I, sh and I show you arguments that um, other people have made against it, and, and, and we analyze those rationally. Uh, I've been told that I sometimes talk too fast, so I wrote the book really slowly. You can take your time with it. <laughs> so you can just enjoy that. If you want a bulletproof argument for biblical creation, here it is. The ultimate proof of creation, very different from what you might be expecting. You might be expecting some nuanced scientific argument. That's not really what it's about. Uh, it's, it's demonstrating that the biblical worldview would have to be true in order for things like science to be, to be sensible anyway. We have that on DVD as well, Ultimate Proof of Creation. Uh, my area of expertise is astronomy, so we've got a lot of resources on that. The Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, just how to better enjoy the night sky from a Christian perspective. That's just a fun, that's a fun resource. If you want to learn, you know, when's the next meteor shower and things like that. And there is, there is a gospel presentation in the back, too, so if you wanted to get it for a friend, um, you never know. Uh, if you want more of an apologetic resource, how to defend the scriptures against the Big Bang and things like that, Taking Back Astronomy. Uh, one of the first books that I wrote, actually. If you want a little more meat, we do have some uh, material that's a little bit more techy called The Physics of Einstein, if you've ever wanted to learn about that, about black holes and is time travel possible and things like that. Truth is stranger than fiction, I'll tell you. Uh, I love this branch of um, physics, but it's written at a layman level, but there are in-depth boxes that you can either read or skip. If you want to go into more detail, if you want to you know, do, do some of the math, you can do that, or you can skip it and get the basic concept. Keeping faith in an age of reason answers over 400 alleged Bible contradictions. You've heard the secularists say, well, you can't believe the Bible because it's got all these con contradictions in it. Well, I checked, it doesn't. So there you go. And uh, you can, it, I give concise answers, but enough that you can, you can uh, really defend that. Uh, discerning truth, how to spot the top 10 fallacies that evolutionists commit when they try to defend evolution or refute creation. Uh, I've found that a, a big portion of apologetics, one of the most effective, is learning how to think properly, learning how to think, which is to think biblically, really. So I actually have a curriculum on that called Introduction to Logic. Uh, most people have not had a class in logic. They do not teach it in public schools anymore. There's a reason for that. They used to teach that in public schools, how to think properly. That's not the goal of public education anymore. It isn't. But we have a teacher's guide for that as well, if you want to use that as, as, you know, for your curriculum with your students. A junior higher up would be the level. But again, most adults have never had a class in logic. Um, I did a Sunday school class on, uh, on logic, and, and so these are 10 Sunday school lessons uh, recorded for you. You can share them with your church. That's fine. Uh, Created Cosmos uh, takes you on a tour of the universe from a biblical perspective. This is the planetarium sh show that I wrote for the uh, Creation Museum a number of years ago, and it turned out really well. Uh, how, to use, how to use creation to better evangelize? Interesting. Uh, dinosaurs in the Bible. This is a great one for youngsters, because uh, youngsters love dinosaurs. And this, the Bible does some, have something to say about that topic. And so it, this, might, you know, this might get them interested in Scripture. You never know. Astronomy reveals creation. Uh, worlds of Creation takes you on a tour of the solar system for, and shows you how each of these worlds, the planets and moons, confirms biblical creation and challenges an evolutionary notion. Secret Code of Creation. This one's unique. This is my personal favorite. It's, it shows you that God has built tremendous beauty and complexity into an aspect of creation you probably never even thought about. And there is no secular explanation for what you're going to see there. It, it only makes sense in a Christian worldview. We have that on Blu-ray as well because it's very, very pretty. And we have a book that goes along with that, Fractals, the Secret Code of Creation. You might leaf through that book. Every picture you see in there, no human drew that. It's artwork of God. It's amazing. 
it's amazing. And it's, we, we did that kind of a coffee table style, so it, it might be a good conversation starter. Might, to, uh, might lead to a gospel conversation. You can get the best of our books together for a, a 20% discount. We only do that at local events like this. Uh, you can get the best of our DVDs for a 20% discount. You can get kind of the best of everything. This is our library pack. It doesn't have everything in it, but it has most of, most of the stuff in there. And that's a 30% discount. Again, we only do that at, um, in, in person. The rest of the resources you can get on the website. The packs you can only get here today. And uh, I think we have some children's resources, too. I didn't write these, but um, these are produced by our sister ministry, Answers in Genesis. They're wonderful resources for youngsters. We also have a uh, monthly newsletter that you can sign up for. So make sure you sign up for that. It's an electronic newsletter, so put your email address or you'll get nothing, okay? (laughs) Email and legibly. And uh, uh, that's just a... And it is totally free. We just want to bless you. So not too many things free in this world, just salvation in our newsletter. So, and then uh, check us out on the web as well. Thank you very much. God bless.